And I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14 as we get to the last couple chapters of the series that we've been going together, uh, journeying together with on the genius of Jesus and the gospel of Mark. <clears throat> the series desiring to know Christ as he wants to make himself known in our lives. And, you know, one of the things I <clears throat> just want to point out as we get ready to dive into this text is the sacred opportunity it is just to read God's word. And I just don't want to say that like I'm some kind of pious, religious, oh, sacred opportunity. But I really want us to see how important this is um, because truth is the catalyst for life change. And if I say something to you this morning, like if I ask you the question, what is your stand, what does your family stand for? And what's, what's an identity? What are the values that you shape yourself around as a family? And if you, you kind of draw a blank as to what that is, and I would, I would encourage you to get into God's word, grab some of the epistles, some of the shorter books, of the new Testament, read about some of the relational interaction that's encouraged in those epistles and find an identity for your family shape itself around. Um, starting with Christ as that foundation and how that plays an interaction in our lives. But truth becomes the catalyst for life change. And we know we discover that truth in God's word. And so what we're embarking on together is something that has the opportunity to transform our hearts as we hear the word and we let it speak to, to our lives. We give God the freedom to, to work it out in us. And so Mark chapter 14 um, is an important passage for us to be able to look at together today. And, and if you've been with us for the series, you know where we're at and where we're heading. I mean, you know, if you're in the gospel where it's going, we're, we're heading to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going through the whole scenario of, of going into Jerusalem, presenting himself as the sacrifice. And even in Mark chapter 13, we saw last week, he brings comfort to the disciples uh, knowing that life's going to bring some turmoil. Jesus is going to be crucified. That's going to be difficult for them to experience. After his crucifixion, they're going to be facing persecution. Again, that's difficult to experience. But we endure those things as a body of believers. We endure the trials and tribulations that life offers because we know we have a hope that endures beyond all of those things. You know, two of the comforts I've found in, in living a life for Christ is some of the promises Jesus gave us that will storm down the gates of hell. They will not prevail. Matthew 28, 19, that he is with us always and to the end of the age. Uh, Jesus' presence is always with us. And in the end, we see the victory in Christ, which ultimately gives us hope in circumstance, that circumstances will pass, but we win in Jesus. And in Mark chapter 13, Jesus sort of strips that back for his followers. He wants them to see the end goal. All great leaders operate from the end goal in mind. The reason that we're here this morning, we desire for lives and hearts to be transformed in Jesus because we experience ultimate victory in him. The most important thing that we can engage in today is worship, to allow God to have our hearts as he created it for his purpose. Mark 13, he lays that out. And then in Mark 14, Jesus spends these final moments of intimacy with his disciples. You know, this doesn't go into a whole lot of detail in Mark chapter 14, but if you want to read about the, the, the intimate moments Jesus spends with his disciples, John chapter 13 to 17 are the last six hours of Christ's life that he has with his, with his genuine followers, the, the 12 that pursue him. And actually one of them is going to betray him. But it's the most, I think, in-depth teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples are found within those chapters. And that's what we're going to unpack this morning as we look at what Jesus uh, shares within the context of the story. But remember, in, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus, he, he went around and he shared with the religious leaders starting in, at the end of chapter 11 and 12. He answered their questions and so well that it just silenced them. And he, and he shares the goodness of, of who he is and clears out the temple. And it upsets the religious leaders. And so Mark chapter 14 starts this way. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. 
They wanted to sneak into his life some way where it would go unnoticed in order to kill him. And it says in verse 2, For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. So the religious leaders are ready to, to take Jesus' life, and they want to sneak into it because they know that Jesus has a large following. They don't want to upset people. And in, in the midst of recognizing that Jesus is about to go to the cross, Mark then shares a story about a lady he doesn't name. Um, this story in Mark chapter 14, verse 3 is also in Matthew chapter 26. It's in, in John chapter 12. But the interesting thing is when Mark shares this story, he doesn't share it in chronological order. When you read the story in John chapter 12, I believe it's in chronological order. But Mark actually shares this story in Mark chapter 14. Uh, he, he shares this story relating to the upper room. But this story actually took place several days before Jesus is in the upper room. In fact, I think it took place before Jesus' triumphal entry on the back of the donkey into Jerusalem. So it's several days before this event, but Mark places it here in this story. And I think Mark's interest isn't to share a chronological story, but he has a a different purpose in mind. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. But I want to look at the context of the beauty of this story. This person isn't named in Mark 14, but in Mark 12, she is. And and the the person's name is Mary. Mary is the the sister of Martha and, and the sister of Lazarus. You see the story in in John chapter 11, Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the grave. And then in John chapter 12, Mary comes in and she conducts this in the life of Jesus that's written in Mark 14. This is what it says. Mark 14, verse 3. While Jesus was in Bethany, the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and she poured it over his head. The story starts off, I love that Jesus is in the home of a leper because this is what's been demonstrated throughout his life. In, in the religious context of Jesus' day, this individual would have been considered unclean. And so to go into the home of an individual that would have been considered unclean would have made you unclean and unable to participate in the Passover. But we learn about Jesus is that Jesus is so pure that nothing, nothing takes away from him, but he makes all things new in himself because of his power. And Christ is in the home of a leper and this lady comes in with this alabaster vial and she pours it over her head. Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but Mark, uh, the, the gospel of Marth, uh, Matthew excuse me, gives us a little more detail. That this vial in which Martha pours on Jesus' head contained uh, this perfume that was worth 300 denarii. In the time of Jesus' day, a denarii was considered a day's wages. And so if you think about 300 denarii, if an individual working worked six days a week and took one day off, that this was literally a year's salary. This was an extravagant gift to pour onto Jesus. Why would she go to such extreme? You know, when it comes to the life of people living every day, we, we recognize in our lives, we, we make time for the things that are important to us. We sacrifice even for those things. When we see life in this world, I think as people, sometimes even if it's a momentary life or it's just something that's exciting that draws us into an excited life, that we're attracted to life. 
We want to belong to something that matters or is significant to us. No matter if it may or may not be important to someone else, there's something about it that draws us to the significance of what's taking place. In the life of Mary, conducting this act towards Jesus, she is gladly, joyfully demonstrating a value upon Christ perhaps Jesus hasn't had demonstrated to this point. Why such an extravagant gift? And it's exactly the question of the disciples as they witnessed what Mary was doing. It says in verse four, but some were indignantly remarking to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor and they were scolding her. And there you have the price. Mary, why are you doing this? Don't you know there's so many better options with your time and this resources that you could have been doing? And here we have in this story, this beautiful display of worship and worth being placed on Christ. And yet you see in the same story, these individuals that might've been considered godly or good, the ones that spent the closest time with Jesus that have seen the most amount of, uh, of miracles that Christ has performed. And they're the ones challenging Mary in this sacrifice. When it says, but, perhaps they're acting like a big one, right? It says, some of them were indignantly remarking. And this idea of indignantly remarking carries the thought of snorting like horses. You've been in those conversations, haven't you? You go to do something and someone gives their opinion. (laughs) That's what they're doing. They're looking at their situation. They're just snorting at her, trying to make these godly objections. Notice they're, they're not really giving anything towards a solution. I mean, they just get to stand back and give all the objections to this. I can do it better. I'll, I'll tell you all of my opinions on this, right? Mary here, she is giving this display of love, worshiping in a genuine heart. And, and these individuals that are supposed to be these godly influences are just snorting like horses. John chapter 12, verse six, when it shares this story, gets a little more specific and lets us know that it's Judas that's leading this charge. It says in verse 6, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer what was put into it. And so while Judas's motivation on the outside may look godly, the reality is, is that his heart is wicked. And you read a story like this, and I think it becomes very easy to become judgmental about the actions of Judas taking place in this story. I think the intentions in sharing this portion of the story is not for us to become judgmental of Judas. All of us create t-shirts, we're all against Judas or something like that. That's not the purpose that he's sharing this story. I think the reason he's sharing this story is because there is a worship war that takes place in all of us. And a little bit of Mary and Judas is represented in every heart that's present in the building today. I'm sorry. Just hear more about Mary than Judas, okay? I didn't call you Judas. You're Mary. You're Mary. (laughs) But this worship war takes place in our lives. Let me just give you an example. One of, the, one of the things that we have coming up is a church, October 7th. This is a shameless plug, by the way, if you didn't get this. is a fall festival to go towards the ministries that we support in India. Lepers, slum schools, and girls in, in an orphanage. We take girls out, out of uh, slums where they could have literally been sold into slavery, into sex trafficking. 
And we help them come to this orphanage, get an education, and they go from a place of desperation, hopelessness, to a place of hope. They find their worth in Christ, and they have an opportunity to live out their, their, their lives in, in proclaiming the goodness of who Jesus is because of the demonstration of, uh, of God's people gathering around them to support them. Beautiful thing coming up October 7th to do that. And so if you want to know more, you can look at the bulletin. I'll share an announcement at the end. But here's the reality. Some of those girls, had they not been swept up and brought into a place of love and care, they could have lived lives that would have just been devastating. Lives that are, would have been so difficult. It would just break your heart to even hear their stories and hearing some of their stories being rescued at a young age, still knowing what they've gone through still breaks the heart. And the truth is, when you look in America today, the statistics say that pornography is rampant. Like some statistics say as high as 90% of college males view pornography regularly. And what I'm saying is with one mouth, we can say what wonderful things we're going to do. And in, in the same breath, turn around and conduct ourselves in a, in a manner that supports the very thing that destroys the life of these young girls. Hypocrisy. And so when you read the story of Mary, the beauty of what's taking place here, and, and you hear the response of Judas and the disciples in, in, in such a contrary nature towards Jesus, it, it just reminds us uh, of the importance of, uh, of what it means to worship God in truth and allow our hearts in these moments looking at God's word to be shaped the way Jesus desires to transform us. Because there's a piece of all of us within the context of the story. And, and I love what Jesus does here. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. Notice the word me there is capitalized. When Jesus describes the act of this woman, this word good that he used, some translations use the word precious, some use beautiful. It's all correct in, in the original languages to what it represents. But Jesus, Jesus is just painting this picture of, of how special this moment is. And it's for your heart to gravitate. You know, when you read these stories in the Bible, as we've gone through Mark, we've seen so many different interactions of Jesus with people. And some people rejected Jesus. Some people embraced Jesus. But all of these stories are to reach your heart to provoke a response. And we as people, we, we love stories. I mean, it's why you go to the movies, right? Whether it's to laugh at one or to cry with one or pretend like you're a superhero with one, whatever, to see it unfold. We love to watch how that transpires and the gospels, the way that they're written, it's known that your heart interacts with, with a story. And so it tells the stories of life and individuals, but it identifies the significance of Jesus most of all, so that you are provoked in a response of worship to what's taking place here. And in the life of Mary, Jesus in this story is pointing out again, just how beautiful this is. And one of the other things that, that's just happening here that's so, I think, important is you look at the life of Christ, his whole life was about serving and serving. And finally, out of all these stories that have taken place about Jesus serving, you finally see someone else responding. 
When you look at the cross of Christ at the end of his life, it's Mary, Mary Magdalene, Mary, Jesus' mother. It's the women that are at the cross. This act of devotion and love. Finally, Jesus is saying, now someone, someone is serving me. Why would Mary go through such an extravagant display of love? Jesus then says again, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. Now, Jesus is not trying to downplay the poor and supporting people is, is important and being a light for Christ in this world around those that have needs. It's important. I think the place that God calls us to worship him is demonstrating the life of others. We, we love others. And in our love for others, that displays a worship to God. Because we love God, we love people. So what Jesus says in, in the greatest commandments, love God, love others. That's why 1 John 4 tells us, if you say you love God, but do not love others, the love of the Father is not in you. And so the ultimate display of your love for God is displayed in your love for others. And I don't think Jesus is trying to downplay the love for others, but rather what he's trying to do in this verse is add meaning and context for the reason why we love others. Because the value of your life is determined not in you yourself, but the value of your life is found outside of you. And the significance of who you are and the worth that you carry in this world has everything to do with the demonstration of Jesus giving his own life for you. He put the bounty on your head. He's demonstrating in the conduct of his actions in this world by dying on the cross, the value for who you are as a human being created in his image. And so we don't just go love people for the sake of loving people. But we love people because of the glory of God that's been made known in the lives of people being made in his image as Christ has also died for you. And so that provides the premise for the actions in which we carry in this world. And Jesus is saying to us, don't ignore that opportunity, but rather embrace it. Embrace the transformation in the worship that you have in Christ. That's why Jesus uses this word me and it's capitalized in English because in the Greek text, it's emphatic. Jesus is demonstrating his authority in this passage, his kingship, his position. Now it's time, Jesus is saying in all this service for me to put my foot down and just say, recognize who I am. Because that becomes the foundation of worship. That's why the most important thing you can do right now, rather than judging Judas, look in your own heart and see if what rests within that is the actions of Mary. In this past week, if your family just examined your life as you lived out in front of them, would your kids say, my mom loves Jesus? I've seen it. My dad loves Jesus. He didn't just say it by words. Didn't just drag us to church on Sunday and that was it. They really love Jesus. They pray for him. And they pour that offering. They read God's word with me. 
They tell me how important Jesus is to them and how Jesus has shaped their life and why they love because Jesus has showed them how to love. That's what Mary's doing. And I love her attitude. Because sometimes I don't think this story would have existed if Jesus did this in the American culture. And Mary comes in and she makes this offering and then she hears this horse snorts. How do you think that would have played out in America? And I think it probably would have gone something like this. People come in, they hear horse snorts. Mary just says, hold on a second, Jesus. I'm going to tell Peter, James, and John like it is. And then after I give them the rant, I'm going to get on social media and tell them how I give them the rant so I can justify my behavior before my friends. They can be like, they can get on that media and be like, oh, girlfriend, it is okay. Those guys are just, your behavior is completely all right. You can act like a rear end because they were butts. Where is that verse? There's no justification in that. In fact, if you think there is, I would tell you this. I'll tell you this. I don't, I don't think I'm arguing with you. Remember, you're Mary's, not Judas. We're not fighting each other today with that. But 1 Peter 2. Go read 1 Peter 2 this week. Spend time just considering the question, God, how do you want me to respond when adversity rises? I love what Mary did. She just worshiped. Snorting horses are not going to dis- deter her. I mean, freak me out, but it's not going to deter her. When I was a little kid, one time, this is a tangent, but I was seven years old. My uncle had a horse, had a baby. I thought it'd be cool to jump the fence and go pet the baby. Then I realized this horse has a mommy. I thought, I'm going to tell the mommy congrats. And I turned around and mom's running at me 100 miles an hour. I started running for the fence. Horse snorts all behind me. Next thing I know, it steps on my foot and I go tumbling. I lay down on the ground. The horse is behind me. It comes down, just smashes right on my chest. Could have killed me. Horses freak me out. Not Mary. She knows where her heart is. She's a worshiper. She knows the significance that Jesus has in her life. And she displays it. And so Jesus emphatically reminds the disciples Maybe it's even for us this morning to say, guys, but there's me. There's me. Do you see the value and meaning of who I am? Theologians have debated as to what's taking place here. Mary takes this vial, this year's worth salary. My word, that is a sacrifice. And she pours on Jesus' head. Mary isn't wealthy. I mean, she's dumping this on Jesus' head. And, and, And when she's... Pouring this on Jesus' head, the, the, the theologians have asked, what exactly is happening here? And they come up with four conclusions as to why this could have happened and what this might mean. And, and the first they just said, this is not real deep here, but they're like, people smell bad. I mean, you're about to have some dinner, you smell bad, you got some kind of date to go on. You just pour some oil on your head and you smell a little better. I mean, this culture, they didn't have deodorant. So from time to time, maybe you didn't always get a bath, especially with the disciples running around. You smell like fish. It's time to pour some oil on your head. It could have happened. The other thing is the type of gift that he's given us is one that you would give to a dignitary, a king. You give expensive gifts to people that are worth those gifts. And so Mary, in offering this, is acknowledging the kingship of Jesus. Some have even suggested that what she's doing is anointing Jesus also as a priest. I don't completely buy that text because it says in, in verse 8, she's, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. When you read this word anointing in scripture, don't assume, you know, it means the same as every time the word anointing is used. There's actually several Greek words for the word anointing. 
Sometimes the word anointed means medicinal use or for medicinal purposes. James talks about anointing people uh, for healing, and that word is actually in a medicinal anointing. There's, there's another word for anointing. It's used for charisma or the spirit of God. When the spirit of God sets you apart for good works. And then there's this word for anointing, which literally just means perfume. It's not used that much in the new Testament, but she, it says that she put Jesus, uh, she put perfume on Jesus's body before he was buried. And what Jesus is acknowledging here, I think is the primary point that Jesus wants us to understand about what's taking place. And that Mary's recognizing what Jesus is about to do with her, with his life for her. And that's why she's responding with love towards him. His life's about to become a sacrifice and she's anointing his body for burial. And it says in this passage, she's done what she could. You know, when God looks at your life, He's not going to judge you for what you don't have. He's looking for the faithfulness and demonstration of love with what you do have. With Mary, who knows how this moment unfolded. I, I doubt she had much time to prepare for the arrival of Jesus. But in her mind, she just thought, man, I want to love Jesus. Maybe this could even be my last moments with Jesus. How can I, how can I in these final moments just demonstrate to him how much I love and all that she had. So what she had in that moment she used. And so then it says this in verse nine, which is a beautiful statement of her worship. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And her display has just made a ripple effect throughout history. How incredible it is to think. Uh, I know that today this type of scenario is not going to play out. I mean, I doubt someone's going to come to your house and you're going to dump a whole perfume on their head, at least out of love anyway. If you think that is, don't do that. Don't, I mean, sometimes the Bible tells us narrative stories not so you go out and do exactly what it says. But, but you think about your life here. Like maybe, maybe God might not have a story that's told beyond you know, several generations after your life. But, but maybe as we work together as a church, there could be a ripple effect in our community. You know, one of the beautiful things um, I've enjoyed over the last couple of years of our church's existence is people in our valley have become to recognize our church. I mean, for a while, it's just been a scary place to look at. But over time, we've worked on this facility and we've had people come in and thank us. We've actually had people drop flowers off out of appreciation. I mean, there's been, I don't know if I should share this with you, but there was actually, when this place was a bar, there were people killed out here. This place did not have a good reputation. But to see what's coming in this valley, and I've even had opportunity in this valley to interact with different pastors, and they, they'll come to me and let me know because what our church does beyond these walls, how we interact in community events and stuff, the reputation that we are building with the lives of people around us. How beautiful that is. And they may not know you by name, but man, there's a ripple taking place. And Jesus is sharing that story about Mary Magdalene. And then it gets in the story of the upper room. Now, remember I told you in the beginning that this story of Mary, Mary Magdalene, it's out of context from the rest of the passage. 
This didn't happen in chronological events. This happened in Mark. The story is being shared for a reason. I'll tell you in a minute. But when you look at the story of Mary, then, then all of a sudden in the upper room, you get the story of Jesus. You start to find out the disciples are, are running away from Christ. And you sort of ask the question, well, maybe, maybe because of all the negative things that are about to happen, the Lord wanted to give us just a nice positive story. Boy, we have to read all these bad stuff by all his followers. It was not, not a bad thought, but I still don't think it's the point of this passage. But nonetheless, you get the story then of the, the upper room. I'll share the point in just a moment, but you get the story of the upper room. You guys might be familiar with this picture, Leonardo da Vinci, all right, the famous Italian painter. It took him, took him a few years to paint this picture, an important picture. I'm going to totally ruin it for you. Appreciate it as art. Historical art is really good. But if you look at this story to help you understand what it looked like at the final supper with Jesus, completely wrong. I mean, the, the night when Jesus betrayed, he goes up to the upper room and he has this intimate moment with his disciples. And so Jesus, if you're doing this at night, first of all, I'll tell you that the window behind you needs to be dark, right? And you look out the window, it's more of an Italian landscape. I don't know what that is, like Swiss Alps or something in the background. I don't even know what mountains are in Italy, if I even got that right. Geography, it's in the Swiss Alps. Okay, so, so mountains are there, not, not Jerusalem. That's not a picture of Jerusalem. You look at the table, it's full of fish and leavened bread. At the Passover, they ate lamb and unleavened bread. And you guys know this. I mean, this is just common when you go out to eat. If you got kids, mom, dad on one side, crazy kids on the other. I, w- I want to sit on my side and have just sanity, peaceful, nice eating. You nutsos on the other side, just don't bother the people behind you, right? I mean, there's no way these disciples are like, um, we want to all be so close to Jesus. Let's all eat on the same side of the table. That did not happen. Nor were they sitting at a, a table that was on legs, nor did they sit upright. So this isn't necessarily an accurate picture. Probably a, a more accurate picture would be this. Tables at this time would have been more in a U-shaped. And, and Jesus wouldn't have sat in the middle of the table. He would have sat on one of the U's on the side. This was the place where the seat of honor was also picked. Judas would have sat in the seat of honor. And this table didn't have large legs. In fact, they would have, they would have laid down on these pillows on their left-hand side, would have reached up to the table with their right-hand side in order to eat from it. And their legs would have hung out from the table. This is why in John chapter 13, when Jesus washed the, fi- uh, the feet of the disciples, he could easily get to their feet. It wasn't because they were under some tablecloth somewhere. It's because their feet were laying out. And Jesus took the role of the servant, went around and washed their feet. When you read this story transpiring between the three gospels, Mark 13, Matthew 26, and Mark, uh, um, excuse me, John 13, Matthew 26, Mark 14, you see within the story, Jesus says that one of them is going to betray them. Peter motions to John who's sitting right beside Jesus. The reason Peter motions to John is because he's sitting on the complete opposite side of the room. It's like, I can't hear Jesus said someone's going to betray him. John, what's he talking about? And then John leans back and asks Jesus the question. You may be wondering, it says in the story uh, that, that John leans on Jesus' chest. Now, I don't know about you when you eat, but ain't nobody doing that to me, right? <laughs> just, I got to get my elbow. I eat like I just got out of prison. Get my elbows, and I'm getting this down, and no one's messing with me. I, <laughs> I inhale food. I don't have, there's no break in me. Once it gets, the faster I eat, the more I can get in, I found. But John, John leans back into Jesus. We understand the setup around this table. It makes sense because John would have been leaning on his side. His back would have been to Jesus. And we leaned over his shoulder right onto Christ. He's saying, hey, Peter's acting crazy over there. He wants to know, who betrayed you? You know, it's interesting when you read how that story plays itself out. 
It, it says in, in Mark 14, as they were clay at the table and eating with Jesus, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one of you is eating with me. They begin to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. Uh, some, of the, some of the text, I think Mark 26, goes a little bit further and says, Lord, is it I? Like they're really torn by the thought that they could do this to Jesus. So they ask, Lord, is it I? All the disciples asking that question, Lord, is it I? Except for Jesus. You know what Judas asked? Judas didn't say Lord. He just said Rabbi. Interesting, there's a uniqueness to his question that's different than the rest. Do you know, if you take that thought a little bit further, if you read the Gospels, what you find is Jesus has personal interaction with all his disciples. There's some kind of deep interaction with Jesus or some conversion story, but you know, there's never any of that with Judas. There's no personal statement of his faith in Christ and his desire to surrender his life to Christ and the kingdom. He's just, he's just there for what he gains. In fact, it told us in, in, in the gospel of John chapter 13 or 12, verse six, that Judas, Judas just wanted to pilfer from the money box. So maybe that leads us to ask the question, why do you worship? Is it just because of what you get? Is it because of who he is? Now you think of the strength of Jesus in these final moments. And we know Jesus hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. But even on the night when he's being betrayed and he knows who his betrayer is, his grace runs so deep, his betrayer sits beside him. He washes his feet. His betrayer sits in the seat of honor and he washes his feet. And the Bible even tells us that he dips bread in in the cup and he shares it with Judas, which is again a, a display of honor. And for three years, Jesus walked life with Judas. And Judas is gonna fulfill exactly what the beginning of chapter 14 says. The religious leaders wanna figure out by stealth how to take Jesus because of the crowds. And Judas becomes that avenue. When Judas leaves this table and he goes to religious leaders to say, I know how you can get Jesus where other people won't know. The price Judas receives for turning Jesus in is 30 pieces of silver, which is the price you pay for a slave during the time of Christ. A display of what Judas thought of Jesus. As Judas leaves... Jesus then does something, uh, I think, very intimate, very important, very significant for the church. He partakes of communion communion at the Passover. Something we're going to do here in a minute, but this is what he says. While they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, take it. They're having a Passover meal. Jesus is now instituting communion through the new covenant that we partake of today. And he's saying this, this Passover meal that you've been celebrating for almost 2,000 years was an ultimate display of me and what I would fulfill in giving my life for you. This is my body which is being broken for you. Take it. And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my body of the new covenant of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never drink uh, again, drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
Now here's something beautiful about what Jesus is doing. Not only is he taking the Passover celebration and demonstrating how he is that ultimate example, he's also connecting a, a ceremony that would be um, comparative to the marriage uh, celebration of, of two individuals that were, I would say, in our culture engaged, but it's a little bit deeper than an engagement. In, in Jesus' day, when a groom wanted to be married to a bride or a young man was interested in a woman, he would go to the father and he would discuss with the father a dowry to pay to ha- make that woman his wife. In, the, in Jesus' day, a lady could be worth, I don't know, a couple camels or <laughs> some cats. I don't know. Maybe, maybe for you, from, I want to institute a new culture for us this morning. Guys, if you've got some girls, uh, before you marry them off, I would say, rather than a camel, maybe work for a car or something like that. But that's the equivalent of what they're doing in Jesus' day. They're trying to come up with an agreement to the dowry to pay for the life of the bride. For you, to know, do you know what it was? Jesus' life. He's literally paying the dowry of his life for you. And when the payment was agreed upon, the groom and the bride would drink communion together to show that that covenant had been made. And the groom would leave in order to prepare a place for his bride and they would be married. So that that ceremony, they weren't married yet, so I refer to it as an engagement, but they were looking forward to that marriage ceremony because the bride, had, uh, the groom had agreed to the dowry and had to pay it in order for them to, to be married. But do you know in that, in that culture, if the, if the groom were to die before that ceremony was ever conducted, she would be considered a widow. And so communion becomes that symbol of two people giving them li- their lives for one another. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. I give my life for you. And in that love, and through that dowry, you give your life to me. What a beautiful picture that is. And today when we celebrate communion, that display continues to be made known in our lives as we look to Jesus. But it still leaves me this, with this question. Why did Mark take the story of Mary out of its natural chronological progression and insert the story before the Last Supper? Why would he do that? When you see the context of Mark chapter 14, one of the things that you recognize is that it always, it's talking about preparation of death. Mary is anointing Jesus' body for death. Jesus talks about his betrayal that leads to his death. Jesus shares the new covenant communion, which is centered upon death, the dowry paid for us. But here's the point, I think. I think this story is setting the stage for how the the gospels transpire. And I think what it's communicating to us is how sacrifice brings life. You you think of the the greatest picture of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice bringing life. And you think of the story here of Mary making a tremendous sacrifice in this cultural context. And how it says in verse 9 that the world, in hearing the gospel, those that hear the gospel proclaim, will hear the story of Mary because her sacrifice is just communicating the beauty of life. The story is saying to us, sacrifice brings life. 
And I think when you see the story of Mark unfolding, Jesus in this is culminating for his disciples still what it means to follow him. If you remember, I told you in, in, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, that that was such a, a pinnacle verse in the context of Mark, because this becomes the place where Jesus, he was, he was declaring his kingdom. He was demonstrating his kingdom. He was invited to his kingdom. And then he says in Mark chapter eight, verse 34, what it truly means to be a follower of him. Jesus said this, if anyone wishes to come into me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He who wishes to keep his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And now at the end of the story where Jesus is about to die, we see that culminating statement made through Mary's sacrifice and Jesus talking about communion, that there is life in sacrifice. But you only think about this. Here's where the story becomes real. Jesus calls you to take up your cross. He asks the question, Christians, are you willing to do that? Or has your life displayed that? Because here's the truth. You can lay your life down, but you can't crucify yourself. You know, when you look at Jesus' life, the Bible tells us he willingly laid himself down. But the crowd crucified him. What I'm saying is when we talk about taking up our cross as believers, it comes in the recognition that in laying down our lives, we're not the ones to do the crucifixion. That comes from without ourselves. In the life of a believer, man, it is, it is so easy when you know you're being maligned, when you know someone's making it difficult for you, when you have a bunch of horses around snorting. It becomes easy to just pull yourself off that cross and get down and, let, and be like, let me, tell you, let me tell you something. And defend yourself. And live it out for your glory. But what Jesus is calling us to in this passage is much bigger than our glory. It's a relationship that runs deeper than that in him. And we've seen it ultimately as he laid his life down for us, that we could lay our lives down for him. And in that, sacrifice brings life, glory to God, and truthfully, intimacy for the believer. When you talk about taking up your cross... And it's not just a popular phrase. I mean, it's one that often wrestles on the tongue of Christians, but it's to recognize that your crucifixion will come outside of yourself. And when that difficult moment comes, whose glory do you stand for? Jesus or your own? First Peter 2 wrestled with, with that in our lives. What God calls us to is to allow that sacrifice to be for him. And let me just, there, there's a statement by John Joett that says this, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. 
But it's in that display of devotion of your love for Jesus that the world sees that love for Christ and they're compelled to respond. It's because of Jesus' love for us that we're compelled to love him. And in turn, people love him in response to our love demonstrated to Jesus. God uses you. Just like Mary in Mark 14 and verse 9, that the world would share the story. And so the question becomes when, when people look at your story, as your story goes through this, this world, as it's lived out, when people are left looking at your life, what would they say mattered? When it comes to making your life a sacrifice, I'm going to close with this. When it comes to making your life a sacrifice, one of the things I just want to point out is a sacrifice isn't just a one and done thing. I mean, it could be. For some Christians it is. But a sacrifice really isn't a one and done thing because the Bible calls you to be a living sacrifice. Which means every day there is a worship war happening in your soul and you have opportunity to lay yourself down or not. What do you lay yourself down for? What will your life and the culmination speak to this world? When I was a um, kid wild and broken. Um, I can remember I'd go to my grandfather's house from an early age up until I was, had my own car and didn't care what happened at that point. But um, I remember my grandpa would always sit in this chair in the middle of the living room and there would be lots of grandkids going around just nuts on a bunch of hillbilly hoodlums. And um, my grandfather, he had two, two incredible gifts that he showed me. One is that any old man can fall asleep anywhere at any time for any reason. You just watch that magic take place. And the other one was, was that um, uh, he loved Jesus. Because every day I knew I could find my grandfather sitting at that chair, reading his word, pouring out his life as perfume before Christ. He loved Jesus. Later in life when I came to know Jesus, I'm kind of at that moment where I'm like, okay, now what? You know, one of the things I had to go back to was the example my grandfather had in just spending time with Jesus. And when he died, my mom handed me something that um, is important to me. It was this notebook of these letters that he had journaled of his time that he spent in that chair with Jesus. When my mom gave me that notebook, one of the first places I turned to was the story at the end of Jesus' life. And one of the things that he said about Jesus as he was getting ready to go to the cross, he remarked of all the interactions people had with Christ as he went to the cross, and he said, how close people were to the cross. But man, how far they were from the cross. It's incredible that you could go through a story like this as we've unfolded over the series of the summer on the gospel of Mark. And I don't know how, but your heart still not be provoked to worship. But the encouragement in the story of Mary in chapter 14 is just to say this. Sacrifice brings life. And when people around you see the value and love that you carry for Jesus, what an impact that makes in the world around you. So the question is, what would they say? I don't want to ask it to guilt you. I don't want you to walk out and be like, man, I'm messing it up. But just to say this, man, I agree. 
and I want to walk with him. God, let me be a living sacrifice. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.